0: Hello and welcome to this fifth edition of the Freshfields International Arbitration Group's podcast series. I'm Will Thomas, a partner in the Freshfields International Arbitration Group, and I'm joined by two arbitration colleagues. Natalie Sheehan, a senior associate in our London office.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: And Amanda Neal, a principal associate in our Vienna office.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Today's topic is business and its interface with human rights and the environment. Now, this is, of course, a subject about which we hear an increasing amount in the media, in company boardrooms, and also in disputes before courts and tribunals. Today, we want to focus quite specifically on how these issues are increasingly impacting international arbitration. Natalie, perhaps we should start by stepping back and looking briefly at the applicable legal landscape which seems to me presently to be a mix of soft uh, and hard law, if you like, existing at international, EU and national levels. Do you think you could first talk us through the relevant international law framework?
1: Yeah, sure. So there is a plethora of human rights instruments at the international level, with the starting point as the UN instruments, including, for example, the UN Declaration on Human Rights. These instruments focus on the obligations of states to protect their citizens, but in recent years, intention has increasingly been given to the human rights impacts of business activities and how corporates can and should operate in a way that promotes respect for human rights. Here we see the emergence of various international instruments that provide a framework for business and human rights. So the primary instruments here are The OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises, which were the first international instrument to integrate respect for human rights as a corporate responsibility. And the first corporate responsibility instrument to recommend incorporating risk based due diligence into all areas where business operations intersect with society. Then we have the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which apply to states and business enterprises, including transnational corporations, and are framed in three pillars. The first of those pillars is the state's obligation to protect human rights. And the second, more innovative pillar is that uh, corporates have responsibility to respect human rights. The third pillar then concerns the provision of access to effective remedy, including through domestic, judicial and non-judicial mechanisms, in order to give the principles teeth. The key issue with these instruments, however, has been their soft law or non-binding status. And thus the question arises as to how these provisions can be better enforced. And this has led to the creation of the draft UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights which aims to regulate the activities of business enterprises, including transnational corporations, with respect to human rights. Now, debates in the drafting of this treaty have grappled with the thorny question as to whether an international treaty can bind non-state actors, i.e. corporations, directly, because traditionally treaties create obligations for states, which can then legislate domestically to implement those obligations. And the current draft of the treaty strikes somewhat of a middle ground, placing the primary obligation on the state to better regulate for human rights impacts of business activities, including prevention of human rights infringements in the context of business activities, for example, through due diligence and by providing effective access to remedy. And it's hoped that through enforcing those obligations at the domestic level, they will extend to corporations. Just thinking then about the international instruments that exist with regard to protecting the environment. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change aims to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. Then we have the Kyoto Protocol, which obliges state parties to reduce emission targets. And of course, most notably, there's the Paris Agreement, which binds all signatories to undertake ambitious efforts to combat climate change and adapt to its effects. While this agreement does not impose obligations directly on non state actors like corporations, it encourages their contribution to climate change tackling
0: efforts. Okay, so turning to you then, Amanda, to what extent have we seen that international law landscape and framework that Natalie's just canvassed, then filtering down, informing and and manifesting in EU and municipal law?
2: Thanks, Will. Yes, there's been a lot of activity, both in the field of human rights and the environment, And one area in which we're seeing a raft of legislation being introduced largely as a result of activity at the international and EU level is, of course, climate change. The Paris Agreement, which Natalie mentioned, has put states under increasing pressure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they're now introducing new climate change laws and policies as a result. But these laws and policies are, of course, also being motivated by other factors, such as public pressure. Uh, The EU has already rolled out its Green Deal, which is a package of legislative acts specifically directed at delivering on the EU's Paris Agreement commitments in order to ensure that the EU can fulfil its long-term strategy of achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. And part of the Green Deal is a potential new carbon border adjustment mechanism. And if this is introduced, it has enormous implications for non-EU businesses that import goods into the EU. Another big area of legislative activity is human rights and environmental due diligence. And this legislation uh, has, in fact, been pioneered at the domestic level by the UK and France. The UK adopted a Modern Slavery Act in October 2015, which is based on existing California legislation, but it goes quite a bit further. And it requires commercial enterprises that carry on business in the UK regardless of where they're incorporated, to produce a slavery and human trafficking statement every financial year, which describes the steps that are being taken to ensure that slavery and human trafficking is not taking place in any of the supply chains or any part of the business. And this statement has to be approved by the company board and posted on the website. Similar legislation has been adopted in other jurisdictions, such as Australia in 2018, which in some respects is even stricter than the UK legislation, And indeed, the UK has just finished a public consultation in which they've agreed to adopt some of these more strict requirements. Another example of due diligence legislation is, of course, the French duty of vigilance law, which was adopted in 2017. And it requires businesses to monitor their supply chains for human rights and environmental protection violations and to publish a so-called vigilance plan every year, which assesses the risks that apply to their business and the steps they're taking to mitigate those risks. Germany is also in the process of finalising their Due Diligence Act, which is directly linked to the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights and the OECD Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. And finally, in April this year, the EU has announced plans for a legislative initiative to introduce EU-wide mandatory due diligence requirements for businesses relating to human rights and environmental matters across the global supply chains. So as you can see, there's a very complicated legal framework out there
0: Okay, so staying with the international law playing for a moment longer, Natalie, there seems to be a growing trend now for states to incorporate human rights obligations on foreign investors in their bilateral investment treaties. So I'm thinking here, for example, of the new Dutch model BIT, which came out to some fanfare not that long ago, and also some actual treaties such as the Morocco-Nigeria BIT. Do you have any observations on that?
1: Yeah, so bilateral investment treaties, which are obviously designed to encourage foreign investment by placing obligations on states to respect those investments and provide investors with rights that can be enforced directly against the host state through arbitration, typically did not reference human rights provisions. Recently, however, we've seen a so-called rebalancing of these rights and obligations between states and investors in newly negotiated bilateral investment treaties and some of the newer model bilateral investment treaties. So, as you mentioned, there is the Morocco-Nigeria BIT, which was signed in 2016, which expressly recognizes that both states uh, must uphold human rights and prioritizes the protection of those rights over creating a favorable investment environment, and also imposes positive obligations on investors who must strike to make the maximum feasible contributions to the sustainable development of the host state and local community through high levels of socially responsible practices. This reflects a broader shift in some of the African multi and bilateral investment treaties to place a greater emphasis on socio-economic development, giving deference to the state's right to regulate. Now the Dutch model BIT, which you mentioned is another really interesting example of these new generation BITs, the Netherlands has an extensive network of BITs, which have traditionally been seen as the gold standard of investor protection, with many investors structuring their activities via the Netherlands in order to benefit from those protections. Strikingly, however, in 2018, the Dutch government announced its intention to renegotiate its 78 bilateral investment treaties with non-European states based on a new model Which narrows the protections offered to Dutch investors, reflecting two government objectives. The first is a sustainable investment policy and a better balance between the rights and obligations of states and investors, taking into account recent criticism by host states and NGOs of investment treaties and investment treaty arbitration. And secondly, the Dutch government is aiming to protect itself in the event of claims by foreign investors In the wake of recent investment treaty claims brought against Spain and Germany for example. Perhaps the most progressive aspect in this context is that an arbitral tribunal may take into account investor behaviour when deciding the amount of compensation to award that investor in the event of a breach by the host state of its obligations towards the investor. In particular, damages could be reduced in the event of an investor's non-compliance with its commitments under the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights and the OECD Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. And this is really quite groundbreaking because it represents an attempt to give teeth to these soft law provisions on business and human rights that we were discussing earlier.
0: Thank you, Natalie. That's really helpful. What about environmental obligations? Are they similarly, equivalently, making their way into investment uh, agreements?
2: Yes, they are, Will. One of the most recent and interesting developments is the proposal by the EU for the modernisation of the Energy Charter Treaty, or the ECT. Now, the ECT is a multilateral agreement for trade and investment in the energy sector. It entered into force in April 1998, and there are currently 53 contracting parties, including the European Union and a number of other states across Europe and Asia. One of its key features is that it allows foreign investors to enforce claims directly against contracting states through international arbitration. Now, over 130 claims have been brought by investors under the ECT since the 1990s, which makes it one of the most frequently invoked international investment agreements in investor state dispute settlement. But it's also made it the subject of significant criticism And indeed, the Secretary-General of the ECT has also called for reform on the basis that the current text is likely to hamper the ability of the world to meet climate targets under the Paris Agreement. So in May this year, the European Commission released its latest proposal for the modernisation of the ECT. The key proposed changes include a specific right to regulate, to achieve policy objectives, such as the protection of the environment, including uh, to combat climate change. A provision which aims at preventing claims based on changes to renewable subsidy regimes, which is one of the uh, major uh, areas uh, based upon which claims have been brought under the ECT in the European Union. And a new expropriation annex, which clarifies that non discriminatory measures designed and applied to protect legitimate policy objectives, such as protection of the environment and combating climate change, will not constitute indirect expropriation unless manifestly excessive.
0: Okay, well, let's go a step further along the same lines and move to how we're seeing human rights and sustainability issues impact specifically in the actual exercise of international arbitration. So let me come back to you, Natalie. An increasing number of investment treaty arbitrations involve defences or to counterclaims by states pertaining to human rights and environmental obligations on investors. In your view, how successful have those defences and counterclaims been for states?
1: there have been several cases in which states have sought to invoke human rights uh, measures as a defence to claims by international investors in respective breaches of bilateral investment treaties, as well as bringing these issues up as potential counterclaims. On the defence side, there have been several cases where Argentina has argued that an obligation to take certain measures during its financial crisis were necessary to preserve the right to water. And those arguments were largely unsuccessful because they were framed by reference to the defense of necessity, which is a high bar. More recently, however, we've seen some of these arguments uh, more successful, for example, in uh, the case of Philip Morris versus Uruguay, where Uruguay successfully argued that it had the right to regulate in respect of public health without paying compensation when Philip Morris challenged Uruguay's rules mandating plain packaging for cigarettes. And here the arbitral tribunal found that the state had a wide discretion to take good faith measures to address public health concerns. In terms of counterclaims, there's been some interesting cases recently, including, for example, Abasa versus Argentina, which concerned a concession for water supply and sewage services. And here Argentina filed a counterclaim alleging that the investor's failure to provide the necessary level investment in the supply services violated the human right to water. The tribunal accepted jurisdiction over the human rights counterclaim, and this is the first time that an arbitral tribunal had done this. In doing so, the tribunal said that whilst most bilateral investment treaties may not impose obligations on investors, they must be construed as taking into account other rules of international law, which would include those relating to human rights. It noted that international companies can no longer be said to be immune from the reach of international law. However, in the absence of positive obligations imposed by a a treaty or domestic law or a contract, private actors are only required to refrain from activities which violate human rights and in that sense they don't have positive obligations. And this is one of the key challenges that arises when states try to base a counterclaim against a private actor on human rights obligations. And finally I'll just uh, round off with the, the Bear Creek Peru case. This case concerned an expropriation claim by a Canadian investor under the Canada Peru Free Trade Agreement where Peru had revoked approval for a mining project following extensive protests by local indigenous communities. The arbitral tribunal found that the mining project had been expropriated by the state action, but the investor was penalized at the damages stage because it had failed to obtain a social license to operate, essentially de facto consent of the project by the local population because it had failed to obtain the social license and had no prospect of obtaining it in the future. And as such, the investor was only entitled to sunk costs of the project and not its future lost profits. Most interestingly, I think in this case is the partial dissenting opinion of the arbitrator appointed by Peru, Philippe Sands, who proposed to reduce the sunk costs that Bear Creek was awarded by a further 50% to reflect, the mining company's contributory fault in failing to obtain a social license. And by relying on the idea of contributory fault, he sought to indirectly give effect to international human rights standards relating to the consultation of indigenous communities about the use of natural resources in their territories. This is a point that we see reflected in the new Dutch model BIT discussed earlier, where investor behavior may be taken into account at the damages phase of proceedings.
0: So picking up from that, Amanda, let's do some crystal ball-gazing. Do you think we might start seeing states using human rights and environmental obligations on investors as a sword rather than just as a shield in the way Natalie's been describing? So perhaps even bringing claims themselves? Is that a realistic possibility?
2: Well, I think at this stage we're predominantly looking at claims brought by states in the form of of counterclaims. Natalie just told us about some of these cases where counterclaims have already been made or where attempts have been made. And this is in fact one of the issues that's been looked at by the UNCTRO Working Group 3, which is looking at reform of investor state dispute settlement in general. One of the major criticisms of investment arbitration is that it's basically more or less a one-way street. Investment treaties are asymmetrical, which means they provide foreign investors with rights, but to date they haven't really imposed obligations on them. And on the other hand, investment treaties impose obligations on states, but don't generally give them any rights to hold foreign investors to account for their actions. Many people have said that the rights of foreign investors should also come with responsibilities, in particular relating to human rights and environmental issues. And I think that we can see that given some of the provisions that are being incorporated into new investment treaties, which we've we've discussed today, it's definitely feasible that investment treaties will be considered to impose obligations on foreign investors and that foreign investors will be able to be held account for breaches of these obligations via counterclaims brought in the investment arbitration context and and possibly also in the future via claims brought by the, the states themselves. And it may also be possible to bring counterclaims for breaches of domestic law or breaches of investment contracts in the investment arbitration context as well, where, where these apply. There are some tricky legal issues to consider when in, in the context of counterclaims, for example, issues of consent and whether or not the tribunal has jurisdiction, but some modern investment treaties are getting around these issues by expressly including provisions allowing counterclaims. And an example of this is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership.
0: Moving on from investment treaty arbitration, to arbitration just generally as a dispute resolution tool for disputes uh, in the context of human rights and the environment. Natalie, a lingering question has been whether the nascent business and human rights legal regime really has sufficient teeth to ensure business compliance. Now, in that regard, we've seen some examples of arbitration being used as a dispute resolution tool in the human rights space. How effective do you think such arbitrations have been? And what impact do you think recent developments like the New Hague rules on business and human rights arbitration are likely to have going forward?
1: So I would agree that enforcement does present a challenge, and this is one that policymakers and lawyers alike operating in this area are increasingly seeking to address, and including through the use of arbitration as a mechanism for resolving disputes. A notable example is with with the respect to the Bangladesh Accord on fire and building safety, which was entered into by a number of global fashion brands and trade unions following the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh in 2013. That accord set out legally binding provisions with a view to improving health and safety standards in the garment industry, which had until then been largely reliant on voluntary compliance and most relevant for our purposes. It provided that disputes could be referred to binding arbitration and there followed two arbitrations under that accord by two trade unions against two fashion brands with the arbitrations administered by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. Both those arbitrations were ultimately settled in 2018, but they really provided impetus to the notion that disputes involving business and human rights could be resolved effectively by arbitration. And this is a cause that we've seen taken up by the Hague Rules on Business and Human Rights Arbitration, which came out at the end of 2019. The rules aim to fill the perceived gap in effective remedies noted in the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights and are designed for use in disputes between individuals and businesses or business-to-business disputes arising in the context of a supply chain, for example, with consent to arbitrate provided in the relevant contracts, or by the parties agreeing to resolve the matter through arbitration, once a dispute has arisen. The Hague rules are really born of the idea that international arbitration could overcome some of the legal and practical obstacles that often arise when seeking to bring human rights-related disputes through the domestic courts. In particular, arbitration can offer a neutral forum, independent of both parties in their home states, and an efficient process over which the parties have a degree of control, including in the selection of arbitrators with the requisite expertise in both commercial law and business and human rights issues. And the process results in a binding award, which is enforceable internationally. The Hague rules are themselves based on the widely used answer trial arbitration rules, but provide a set of procedures tailored specifically for disputes relating to the impact of business activities on human rights, including, for example, taking into account the potential imbalance of power that may exist between individuals and businesses in the human rights context, and the desire expressed in some quarters for greater transparency in the arbitral process. Now, the rules are relatively new, and as far as I'm aware, are as yet untested, but this could provide an effective way of addressing business and human rights related disputes and therefore enforcing human rights provisions in the future.
0: Thank you, Natalie. So what about in the environmental context, Amanda? There seem to have been a number of recent arbitration-related developments in that space too.
2: Absolutely, Will. The International Chamber of Commerce set up a task force in 2017 to consider arbitration's role in resolving climate change-related disputes. The members of the task force included business and industry representatives, lawyers, representatives of NGOs, academics, And the task force published a report on uh, the 28th of November, 2019. The report does a number of things, including identifying which disputes should be classified as climate change related disputes. It considers whether arbitration requires any special features to resolve climate change related disputes. And it also reviews the ICC arbitration rules in light of the task force's findings Now, the report takes a very broad view of what constitutes a climate change-related dispute, and this is basically any dispute arising out of a contract relating to the energy transition, or which otherwise involves a climate or environmental-related issue. And uh, it, of course, includes climate change-related disputes which are specifically submitted to arbitration by the parties. And the report goes on to identify six features of arbitration, which could be improved to increase... Uh, the effectiveness of arbitration in resolving climate change-related disputes. And these are enhancing access to appropriate experts, uh, for example, by expanding the existing pool of experts available by connecting climate change scientists and other technical experts with arbitration specialists, increasing the responsiveness of arbitration, including improved case management techniques such as limiting documentary evidence responding better to changes in climate change law, increasing transparency of the proceedings, for example, making proceedings open to the public in appropriate cases and by publishing awards, increasing third party participation and flexibility surrounding costs, which would mean that in appropriate cases, uh, public or NGO claimants could obtain funding for their claims.
0: Natalie, Amanda, Many thanks both for your insights, lots to reflect on there, uh, and I'm sure we'll be back to update in the future. Uh, In the meantime, for those listeners who are interested, uh, these issues and many others are the subject of a dedicated Freshfields blog. Uh, You can find it at sustainability.freshfields.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.